Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Today, with my very familiar guest, we are going to deal with a subject that we've dealt with before, and he's dealt with before, but this is, this is his beat. And the issue is expropriation without compensation. Gabriel, as the expert of, head of our campaigns, welcome to the program. How's it, Sarah? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Gabriel, I'm, perhaps I'm going to um, give, give a little bit of history and you can sort of pick up where I, where I leave off. In 2017, at the literally in the final dying minutes of the, of the elective conference in, uh, at NASREC, the decision was made to move towards ex- to legislation that would allow for expropriation without compensation. It then hung in the air for a couple of years, and but eventually, very enthusiastically, a bill was produced. President Ramaphosa really steered it forward, but together with the bill was a proposed amendment to Section 25 of the Constitution in order to constitutionally uh, allow for for expropriation. That very much became the focus of of, of the problem. But in the end, um, the the change to the constitution was not made. The number of people who who uh, were needed to vote for it it didn't quite hit the uh, the, the two thirds. So that failed. And then again, um, sort of a little quiet for a few months. And now with the recent elective conference, expropriation without compensation. Bill has come back with a vengeance. Gabriel, take us through why, A, it's, it's so important to oppose this bill and B, the process that's about to be followed. So, I mean, I think that the reason it's important to oppose it is twofold. Firstly, there are the people that will be directly targeted by expropriation without compensation. That means the government's taking away their stuff. And it's hard to know exactly who those people are going to be. Uh, obviously, South Africa's least popular minority, racial minority or ethnic minority, is uh, white Afrikaans farmers because of the connection between that minority and apartheid. Afrikaans is the language of the oppressor, is the kind of thing that anyone who'd read the New York Times or the, the, Mail and Guardian, the London Guardian would have known for decades and decades, and, and there's a similar stigmatization here. So it's easy to think that it's just going to be the farmers. That is the group that has been sort of held up as the scapegoat that this is designed to go after. But it's important to note that it really goes further than that. One of the things to note about the expropriation bill which is this thing that is now was always going alongside the constitutional amendment, but now that the constitutional the constitution wasn't amended explicitly, uh, but so many people argued that it implicitly already allows for expropriation without compensation, that the worry is that it might have implicitly been amended. In other words, in black and white, it says that your it says that there must be a just and equitable uh, recompense. And that must mean, uh, to my mind, something like market-level compensation. But so many people have, have talked themselves into the corner of, of, of thinking that it already allows for EWC, expropriation without compensation, that that constitutional protection might not be there to help you out if push comes to shove. Uh, so, But what the expropriation bill does is it allows for expropriation without compensation, also a strongly almost always requires expropriation for below market level compensation. Mm. So let's, so the car train is being expanded now, or there's talk of that. 
And that will probably mean that some people's homes or businesses are going to need to be taken by the government. And that's a pretty standard procedure around the world. There's a new airport, a new extension to a train line. And usually they'd be paid market-level compensation. And it's sort of unfortunate you have to move, but at least you're financially kept whole. Under the expropriation bill, those people could easily be getting 10% of the value of their home or business. And that's just not the kind of thing you would have thought of uh, offhand. But yeah, so it's not just farms, it's uh, holiday homes, it's homes in peri-urban areas, which are going to be the most attractive for bankrupt municipalities to try and expropriate, to sell off to re- real estate developers, businesses with large earths. Uh, those would be the obvious places to start. But the thing I try and tell people is that and I suppose this, my problem is that I studied political science, and so I, I really cared about – I'm one of the few people who cared about property rights before EWC came knocking. I think for most people, it's like plumbing. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. As long as it's working, you don't really care about it. But the thing about property rights is it really is like a fire. So in rural areas, everybody knows – and I mean in, in suburban areas too. Like if there's a fire next door, there's no ways – that you're sitting on your hands and doing nothing about it. You want to make sure the fire brigade comes because even though you are not the direct target, if you don't put the fire out, it's going to hop from property to property and it's going to affect even those that weren't uh, uh, where it started. And, and that's the problem with EWC. Venezuela had expropriation without compensation uh, that was just allowed for – the idle parts of of latifundos, of these large sort of colonial era estates, and the law changed just to allow expropriation of idle land, they called it. And they're like, of course, this is going to have no detrimental effect on mom and pop shops. This is not going to harm people who are living in their own homes. This is only going to be a little bit tough on the ultra-rich, and it's not even going to be that tough on them because if they are farming 10,000 hectares, it's, it's the 11,000 hectare that they're letting lie fallow that's going to be taken away. That immediately crushed markets. And through the years, it resulted in such a devastating economic uh, fallout in Venezuela that I think the average adult lost about 12 kilograms, effectively through you know government-mandated starvation. The, the skills base entirely fled that could. Uh, teachers and doctors – sorry, university professors and doctors earn – so little, I think on the last count, their official salary can buy, you know, roughly three loaves of bread mm. and uh, a little basket of vegetables a month. So uh, people who survive have to survive by uh, doing all kinds of shady business on the black market, crimes through the roof, you know, just everyone's savings have been completely uh, mulked. And, and then, uh, nationalized. But, you know, they started with idle estates and they ended by nationalizing concrete factories and, and mm. the Kellogg cereal <laughs> producer in town. So, so, th- so that's the fire spreading around. You know, you've got to pick a point when you stop that fire from spreading. And I think for almost everyone, and our polling at the IRR shows that this is right, for almost everyone thinks that the fire should stop the moment it starts. That there's, that there's no one who should be thrown under the bus or fed to the behemoth of the, of the sort of uh, rapacious grasping state that everyone's property rights should be protected. And, and, and our mission is to, is to try and bring that voice of common sense up to the level of the, the, the corridors of power. And so we've got like letter writing campaigns asking the banks if they're 
still opposed to expropriation without compensation through the expropriation bill. Since Ramaphosa renewed his call for it at the ANC policy conference, as you mm. mentioned, Sarah, uh, have that, has that changed their mind? Are they, has Ramaphosa, has Ramaphoria come back and now they're going to be soft about it? Or are they going to just be clear and say, we need to protect our financial interests. We need to protect mm. our clients. We need to protect this country's economic prospects. We need to oppose expropriation without compensation. The same for Woolworths, pick and pay, checkers, all of the major food retailers, because this is food security in South Africa is a nightmare. 1.7 mm. million children have stunted growth because of malnutrition already. So food security is is not something we have. We're better off than pretty much everywhere else in Africa, but we don't have the, the, the right kind of standard whatsoever. And this will obviously make that worse. But are the food groups going to stand up and say something about it? They've got so much social branding and you know investment in community projects and stuff. Are they going to actually just put a little bit of uh, uh, spine behind uh, resistance to a government policy that's really going to make the poor people trying to buy puppet mm. willies or checkers uh, so much worse off. Um, mm. And finally, property developers. You know, the, the construction mafiosa in South Africa kind of crept in under a blind eye. Um, not a lot of attention was granted to it. And so it's already a sector that's, that's, that's in deep trouble. We've seen construction jobs being lost in the last, you know, since before the pandemic. Uh, after a, a pretty sustained boom and and fundamentals in that industry being very disturbing. But here comes something that would really blow a hole in the floor of the property development sector because no one wants to invest if not only your phone and your car can be stolen by hijackers at the street, but your actual apartment block can be stolen. That's just not a – it's just the opposite of an investment-friendly environment. And what we need is an investment-friendly environment to get the world's longest unemployment line to shrink down, to get you know young men like I was unemployed for a little bit, just get young men back to work, uh, and women, you know, get every get get people uh, in a position where where they're included in the economy, where they've got a reason to wake up early and tie their shoelaces and, and get something done. Uh, one, I mean, one of the things that disturbs me about the sort of the double speak is you literally hear Ramaphosa in one breath say, you know. Expropriation without compensation, blah, blah, blah. And in the next place, you know, we're creating a, an investor-friendly market, which is just, you, 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 it's the one cancels out the other. I mean, that, that's the reality. What I wanted to, what I wanted to ask is one of the reasons that's sort of keep, doesn't, doesn't, isn't there all the time, but it's, it's sort of thread through as a justification for EWC is transformation, sorry, transformation of land ownership for historical reasons. So the question is, do you need this bill to achieve that result? No, um, absolutely not. At the Institute of Race Relations, we are firmly committed to land restitution. In other words, if someone or a direct descendant of someone had their land taken away by the by the Nats or by the sort of soft apartheid government that we had since the 1930 Land Act, you know, basically since the Union of South Africa, there were laws to curtail the property rights of black people, which severely harmed the economy for everyone. The, 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 the right thing to do is for that person to be made whole, for that mm. family to be made whole. So land restitution is, is, is not just a, a nice to have, it's a need to have. The interesting thing about it is that by 2017, 95% of the land restitution claims that have been made have been settled. So, and there had been two windows. The original window ending in the late 90s, I think it was, was extended into the 2000s, extended again to, to really 
give people the maximum amount of time to sort of cotton onto the fact that if you've heard a story about how your grandmother or grandfather used to live over here and they were driven off by the gnats, uh, you can go and make a claim. Most of those that were settled, of course, famously were settled in cash rather than in land for the simple reason that, that farming is a difficult business. Uh, in, in places like India and Rwanda, you know, I visited Rwanda as a teenager. I remember one of the a local Rwandese saying, the beautiful thing about this place is it's, it's got so much rainfall and it's got this volcanic ash. If you just sneeze here, that snot of yours will hit the ground and start growing into a banana tree immediately. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty revolting okay. But it, I mean, Rwandese land really is like that. And you can see it when you're driving around the countryside. There are tiny little plots that are as large as like the average, uh, you know, Joburg suburban garden. And, and those plots can sustain a family. The same is true in parts of Bangladesh, in, 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 in quite a few parts of India. There are hyper-fertile parts of the world. South, nowhere in South Africa is like that. On the wet side of the country, which is where most former Bantustans were, where most black ownership of farmland is, uh, things are much better off than in the sort of Karoo, Klan Karoo, uh, dry half of the country, northwest. You know, northwest and northern Cape, you have to have like, you know, almost 10,000 hectares, 100,000 hectares, mm. 20,000 hectares, sorry, in, in order to sustain a family. But in even in the wet half, you need quite a lot of land. Uh, for there to be a viable business prospect. You need mechanized tilling and planting and spraying in order to make things work in most places. If you're a cattle farmer, you know, people are aware that a lot of Bantu cultures, to use the anthropological term, are, are, are sort of cattle is a, a unit of wealth and a source of wealth. But I've hung out in rural KZN. Firstly, the theft is so extreme mm. uh, that a lot of, you know, I remember speaking to, to two, two, two guys who one had been a security worked in private security and the other one had been a minor they, they were about 80 years old they you know mostly worked through apartheid in, in very tough conditions but they'd managed to save up enough to get 40 head of cattle which you think is quite a lot it is uh, fairly substantial but you know half their cattle were stolen in the first two years and I said, what about the fencing? Like, I can see that there's a couple of standards, but there's no real fencing around here. And they said, yeah, the thing about the fencing is that's the first thing they stole. And if you put up more fencing, you're just adding something for them to steal. Uh, and so with no fencing, your cattle, you can't control their grazing. That means they can easily be stolen, but also it means that they can, they're not going to, you're not managing their feeding patterns. So by August, when it's very dry, there's no grass that you've protected for them to go and put down, you know, for them to go and eat. And then if you want to keep them fat and strong, you need to be spending a lot of money on hay and food supplements, maybe some saccharin. It's, 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 it's a complicated business and it, it requires both overheads and serious input costs along the way in order for it to be viable. So a lot of people understand, a lot of people really do understand that very poor, very simple people know a lot more about farming and how difficult it is because they are in that environment than a lot of city slickers with degrees and, you know, opinions about the politics of Peru because, because people are quite detached from how farming really works. So people want the cash so that they can use that cash to go to town to find a job. Mm. Um, anyway, so, so, and the remaining restitution cases, it's not that, uh, 
it's it's no more or less complicated than this. They're stuck in the courts, and the court process is is not a is one that's letting people down on on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so restitution is a must in terms of land reform in order to bring about some kind of racially demographic representativity. Representativity. I'm not sure that that's a useful target in banking or in in the law or in engineering or in farming. Um, I'm of the view that if people are given the best opportunities to find work, South Africa has made the safest investment environment that it can be, that we have seen that the, that the natural talents, that the fact, uh, the facts of demographics being, you know, that uh, black people are a strong majority, uh, do just translate into, you know, non-homogenous results. Uh, Thomas Sal, uh, African-American stalwart professor of free markets, has pointed out that there's never homogenous results. But you really do get, I think, socially beneficial results in the sense that, you know, you have got some specialists here and some specialists there. And, and as a perfect example of why I don't like quotas, you can look at ladies, black women in the, in the legal profession who have now at the Cape Bar and the Joburg Bar and another bar, I can't remember which it was, where black women have been refused promotion Explicitly on the basis that they're black women, uh, because the quota said you only get like two black men, two black women, one white man, one white woman uh, for any cycle. And there's just like four black women that are the best, but the quota only allows two. So the other two uh, get held back. That's crazy. Much better to, to, to just go forward on the, on the basis that uh, human talent will strike out. And, and as it happens, I know I'm not alone in thinking that because when the IRR does its polling, we find that 80% of people say that they want um, jobs to be chosen on merit. With with extra education opportunities, 60% say they want extra education opportunities for the genuinely disadvantaged, which doesn't mean the sons and daughters of the revolution uh, who went to nice private schools like me and some students, nice fancy universities around the world, Rhodes Scholars and so on. But like genuinely disadvantaged people absolutely are being left behind by the education system. That's got to change. Uh, but overall, 80% want jobs to be appointed by merit and, and farming is a job. So anyway, the, if, if you want the more complicated version, you can go to the Institute of Race Relations uh, website where you'll find quite a serious policy document laying out in detail how land reform should go. And and it, it, it is important to get things right. It is important to grow the agriculture industry and support it. But EWC is the opposite of that. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Gabriel, I wanted to ask you about uh, the fact that the the expropriation bill is not is not sort of an isolated piece of legislation that uh, that we're sort of looking at solely and 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 uh, uh, sort of in. Uh, Looking at it in isolation, there's other legislation, there's a whole process that links together the, the sort of policy ideology of moving away from private ownership and essentially, I, I, would, I would say, uh, targeting ordinary people um, because they represent the, uh, the liberal Necessity of of things like private ownership and key, and having the uh, the government out of you know out out of the way, shall I say? But no, the government's coming further and further wants to encroach on on our rights and our the ability to to run our lives as we choose. Could you elaborate on that idea for me in practice? What's practically happening? 
Yeah, so the expropriation bill will be voted on by parliamentary committee on September 14th, and that's where the language will be finalized. On September 16th, the new trespassers law called the Unlawful Entering of Premises uh, Amendment Bill will be closed for, for public comment. We at the IRR will be, will be opposing that. Uh, and uh, we also have the, the Land Courts Bill uh, coming up for another round of passage through Parliament in September as well. So if you just look at those three plus recent court precedent, I think you see a little quadrangle, a little sort of way to to pin down South African puny citizens uh, under the grand gargantuan weight of the state and, and basically put people in a position where, yeah, you don't just get, uh, you don't just worry about getting robbed by another person, but you, you, you seriously have to worry about the state coming to, to, to fleece you. So, so here's a little scenario to show how those three laws and one bit of court precedent interjoin. In this, in this pretty grim way. Let's say someone invades your property. That can be a farm and someone comes into the farm and starts building a shack. Or it can be a holiday home and someone comes in while you're away and uh, decides to just live there. Or they're renting out and they decide to stop paying rent and just stay there. It could be your cottage. Uh, the same thing. If you've got like a little Airbnb cottage in your, in your house in, t- in town. Or let's say it's your business. And uh, there's a sort of worker strike and they get into the business place and, and they say, you know, we're actually not going to leave. We brought our, our blankets and our, and our uh, kerosene cookers and, and we're going to stick around here. This is now our place of work and our place of uh, residence. Well, usually in most countries, you'd be able to call the police and sort of say, can you help me get rid of these people? Or you'd be able to get rid of them yourself with rules about not just shooting someone blindly, for sure, uh, but you'd have some ability to, to, to remove people. In South Africa, that's not really – there's a very small window where that's still allowed, but according to the Western Cape High Court precedent uh, of a month or two ago, once someone has, you know, metaphorically just gotten undressed, and this case did emerge from that guy who famously was evicted naked in 2020, once someone has – put up four pegs and a sheet of metal. Once someone has bedded down, they are no longer invaders. They are not dwellers. And that means they get pie protection. That's the Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act. And that means that you need a sort of minimum eight-month court process to get a court order to get them evicted. And alternative accommodation needs to be provided. So you can buy them alternative accommodation or you can rely on the states to do so. And that can just mean that they sit on a long list and uh, <laughs> that can mean they stay on your property for years and years. In the meanwhile, you have to pay rates and taxes. If they're using electricity and water, you're liable to pay that. So that's a pretty nasty situation. That already is happening. I mean, if you drive down the N1 from Joburg to Cape Town, uh, along the Gauteng Free State, but you will we'll have seen mushrooming illegal settlements. If you drive down the N3 to Durban, you'll see the similar thing. You know, I think people who've driven around the rural areas are quite familiar with these, with these developments. Um, and of course, uh, Cape Town was recently saying that billions and billions of rands of, of, of state land, um, has been illegally invaded in the last few years. So, so that's one kind of thing. But then there comes the next step. You, 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 you you, you think, well, at least I still own my land in theory. And so at least after a period of time, I can get rid of them. But Section 12.3 of the Expropriation Bill says, here's one of the scenarios where you're going to get expropriation for nil compensation. 
is where you've lost control of your land. So you've lost control of your land. Someone else has taken control over it from you. You're stuck on the outside. They're on the inside. Well, that means expropriation without compensation. And the state can then take away your title deed, and it's got a public interest in doing so because the state wants to provide alternative accommodation to the land invaders. And by taking away your title deed, it can provide that alternative accommodation by saying, you Oaks stay exactly where you are, transport cost is zero, but now that we've taken their title deed and nationalized the land, we're saying you have permission to stay here, it's legitimate. Okay, so that's terrible, but at least you might think there was originally a crime, so we can at least prosecute the people who invaded the land illegally, at least make them go to jail for a year or two, then they can come back and sit in this uh, place that they've now won for themselves. No, because the new trespassers law says that it's a legitimate defense against the charge of illegal land invasion to say that you believed you had a, a just interest in going there in the first place. Okay, so that I'm actually going to pause for an ad break there and then you okay. pick up as it gets for the worse. last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Gabriel, we've got five minutes left. Um, make us more miserable. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. You've got to hear it. You have to hear it. So I've gotten to the, we've gone through the stage of the land invasion being you, you can't call the police, but the, in fact, the police will pr- stop you from evicting the people once they've taken off their clothes or bedded down <laughs> to the government can then take away your title deed because you've lost control of the land to the charge of there originally being a crime of land invasion being defensible by the claim that they believe they deserved it in the first place to, okay, well, but can't the court see through that argument? Okay, the law says it's a just defense to say you believed you deserved it. But can't the court see that it's not reasonable to think you deserve to take someone else's stuff? Well, think again, because what the land court's bill does, once it becomes a law, if it does, if we can't stop it, the land court's bill says that on matters of fact in disputes about property, the final decision is made by experts in the field, quote unquote, which really amount to, in the way the the, the, the process works, sort of land activists, the kinds of people who come out of the Marxist such as factories we call universities and say that, you know, the, the land should be equally distributed amongst all people and that you can tell someone's guilty just by looking at the color of their skin and so on. Those people get to override judges in deciding Ooh. matters of fact. So insofar as this question of is it a just defense rests on a matter Jeez. of fact, the land courts bill is going to make sure that, the, you know, the kangaroo court bill is going to make sure that <laughs> that, uh, that the property owner is not protected. So every step of the way from the moment of the invasion through to the, the fruition of the invasion, the legitimization of the invasion by taking away through Section 12.3 uh, the title deed because you've lost control, through to then retrospectively defending the invaders – and uh, leaving the owners exposed. You, you, you put ordinary people in a position where the government is not there, the state is not there to help put out the fire of theft and venality. It is just another instrument to channel humankind's most corrupt instincts. And we all have corrupt instincts. You know, part of the reason I like living in a society is that I know I, you know, I'm not a perfect person. Um, from ancient philosophical days, the ring of Glaucon in, in Socrates and Plato, the thought was if you could wear a ring that would make you invisible, you would not be a perfect person. You would eventually 
uh, find the temptation irresistible. Well, most of us would. There are some angels. But most of us find the temptation to go and do something bad irresistible. That is why we have governments, is to keep each other accountable, is to, is to, is to block off the, the, the worst impulses that we all share. Things really go wrong when the government does the opposite, when it just, uh, when it just fills the flames. And, and if you, if you see how these different bits of laws all fit together, then I think the, 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 the basic too long didn't read uh, version is what happened in Zimbabwe was that, you know, there were a lot of land invaders who, who illegally went and took farms and, you know, wrecked the country. The prospects of, of most middle class and poor Zimbabweans was, was destroyed. And the law caught up with that. The law was sort of chasing after it, trying to legitimize it in retrospect. We're going to do it as Ramaphosa promised by the book. So first the law will pave the way for mass land grabs incrementally step by step, and then you go ahead and do it. I'm sorry I have to, I have to interrupt you there, Gabriel, because we're literally running out of time and uh, um, I have to wrap up. In so up. many ways. In so <laughs> many ways. Therefore, I need to ask you if we've persuaded our audience that something needs to be done and that they can be a part of doing it, where should they go? Yeah, if you if you do want to stand up and join the fight, irr.org.za, uh, you will find a link there to a petition. We've I don't know the numbers. We only started it a week or two ago, and we've got thousands and thousands. We're getting like thousands a day. Sign that petition. Say stop the expropriation bill. Um, we're also opposing the other stuff, but I think that's the best place to start. If you can't find irr.org.za because those are complicated, you know, IRR is a bit weird. Go to the Daily Friend. That's a word. The Daily Friend, you'll find a good writing about this. You'll see a piece about it by our colleague, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, last week. Um, you'll see lots of podcasts about this. And uh, I think, really, if you're a customer at a bank, if you are a customer at a major food retailer, if you are thinking of buying or selling a property or you've had anything to do with a, re- a real estate developer or a state agency, you know, reach out to them. Appreciate that big businesses do have clout in this country. They do. Unfortunately, we're a very winner-takes-all market, but those big businesses have the ability to apply pressure on governments. And here's an interesting detail. Last year, when the ANC tried to pass the constitutional amendment to allow EWC, they only got 204 votes in parliament. There's 400 seats in parliament. So they had a majority of four. Now, that wasn't enough for changing the Constitution. It would be enough for passing this law. But it also means if we can just pressure five MPs to stay home, if we can, you know, last time 20, 30 ANC MPs <laughs> stayed home. So, and I can start going through those names. But there, so there are MPs that are not willing to put their name to ruining South Africa. You just turn up the heat. Turn up the temperature, and you can do that by either, you know, signing up with us or putting pressure on big business, which then in turn puts pressure on those politicians. We only need to win five seats to stop this thing where it starts. Well, that that I think is is motivation of the of the highest order. I, I also wonder whether the, we shouldn't send uh, some land invaders to a property on the. In Fresne, with 30 million rand overlooking the, uh, the, the, the Western Seaboard. <laughs> Gabriel, thank you. Thank you very, very much for that exposition, shall we say, on how the government can take our stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to everyone for listening and, uh, get into fighting mode. Um, we've got nothing to lose but our property. So see you next week.